Well, we're so glad you could uh, be here in this, in this uh, continuing study in our confidence in Christ. How are we doing audio-wise? Audio Can you hear me okay? Loud enough? All right. Good enough. I'll, I'll speak up if I gotta, but everyone at home will be, ah, it hurts. <laughs> Screaming right into the microphone. Mm. Well, again, we're continuing on in this study. If you'd like to take a copy, there's still several copies in the back. Um, uh, or you can order them on Amazon.com. But uh, the study is called Confidence in Christ, and it's about asking an, uh, that important question of what does it mean to walk with confidence, to live with confidence. It's uh, Jordan, it's right on the very end. Can't miss it. There you go. Um, uh, how to live with confidence, not just how to be confident over a specific thing, but how we are meant to uh, address ourselves and live in this world uh, with confidence. We're actually picking up with chapter three today, if you're following up along at home um, in the book. Um, but as we come to our study today, I want you to think about rating your confidence level. We're going to not rating, rate, rating. Your, so rate your confidence level. So put yourself in this situation, if you would. Pretend that you have a medical emergency of some kind. Which person would you be most interested in seeing walk through the door? Person A on the, on the it would be left, or person B on the right? You've got a medical emergency, maybe a, a, a heart issue or something. You wake up in the hospital. Who do you want to see walk through the door? Who, hands for person A on the left-hand side. You want to see that guy come through the door? Most of, most of us seem to favor him. Person B, how many want to see him? It's, it, nobody. That's strange. Not, I thought we'd get at least one person who's like, I don't trust doctors. That guy at least has had enough tattoos to be, you know, reliable. But anyway, the, the reality is you might have a ton of confidence in the guy on the right for a certain situation. He may be a good friend of yours, very reliable in certain situations. But if you have a major medical issue, you, you're more going to tend to have confidence with the guy on the right. Let's pretend you have car trouble. Are you going to tend to in, uh, trust the fellow on the right, number, fellow number two, clearly seems to have some automotive experience, or the person on the left who, you know, thinks that oil goes in his hair? Which, which guy? You think guy number one on the left, hands, if you're having car trouble, or, or do you want guy number two who's actually seen the inside of a car? Again, almost unanimous that everybody wants to see the mechanic. Let's go just one step further. How much confidence do you have when, you, when the chips are really down? When the chips are really down and things are really difficult, who are you more likely to call? The person on your left, that is your, your spouse, your best friend, a family member, or your local politician? Who do you think is going to be there for you in that time of need, right? In that moment, who are you going to call at 3 in the morning? Who's going to call your local politician? Who has that much confidence in your local politicians? Aria does. She's like, yeah, I'll call a, one of the council members or something. And then every, uh, what, who of us would call a close friend or, a friend or family member? Oh, seems like everybody-ish again. You see, confidence has a lot to do with the situation, the stakes, and what you know about the person you are calling. If we were to go back to that first example, you might, you know, be surprised to know that the person on the right was actually the foremost brain surgeon in the world and he was actually the one you should have trusted and the other guy was just a crazy pill popper trying to sneak in and get lewds from the hospital but you went on the information you had and that one of these guys was that's neither of that's true if you see that fella in that picture i don't even know who he is he's definitely not not uh, not a criminal probably he's probably a model but anyway the point is 
You go based on the information you have, the situation, and how high the stakes are, and, and most importantly, whatever information you can gather about the person uh, whom, you are, whom you're calling on, whom you're going to have confidence in. So with that in mind, when we, as we think about our confidence in putting our confidence in someone else and what it takes for us to do so, I want to remind us where we were last week. Last week might have been something of a downer of a message, but hopefully it had a happy enough ending for us. I know it did for me. Um, losing confidence was kind of the, the ultimate point. And we saw that the world has a constant message of have self-confidence, believe in yourself, and try harder, and you know, it's all within you and all this other garbage that's mostly entirely false, right? And what we saw in the Bible by very uh, stark distinction to the world's message was that within ourselves, we have no power to save ourselves. We have no power to do anything to work off our sin debt, to pay for our sin debt, to make it right so that we might be saved before God. Furthermore, Within ourselves, we found out that we have no power to live a truly good and godly life. If we rely on our flesh resources, what we have naturally apart from God, we are left hopelessly wanting, along with Paul saying, uh, you know, a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? We saw that we have no power in and of ourselves to glorify and honor God. We saw that the best works, the best reputation, the best we could pull together was only waste, was only rubbish before the holiness and righteousness of the Lord God. And that potentially sounded like a downer of a message. Certainly the most uh, surprising and if even uh, shocking message in in, in today's world, where the believe in yourself, self-esteem message is so popular, even uh, without any purpose. But we, we want to note first and foremost that the, probably the most important lesson we can learn about confidence is where not to put it, right? We have to recognize that if we are trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own works, trusting in our own ability, our own intelligence, our own um, uh, production, to make us worthwhile, to make us valuable, to be able to walk through this world with confidence, then we will forever be underconfident, or as we saw last week, we're going to live in false confidence. We're going to live a lie, which is the worst of all things. Even if we can feel like we've won a couple rounds in this life, everybody ultimately will wind up with uh, the same basic hand, right? The body breaks down, something happens, you're left without the, uh, the, the devices or the power or the wealth that you thought was going to get you through. And we all pass, into, pass out of this life alone with no power to stop it. We can delay it, but no power to stop it. So learning how to live with confidence. And what we saw is that the best that the world can offer is a fake it till you make it type of confidence. And while that might work, that is to say, get us through this life, God wants us to be authentic. He doesn't want us to be fake it till you make it uh, humans, and he certainly doesn't want us to be fake it till you make it Christians. He wants us to know him and have a confidence that supersedes our own abilities. So the first thing that we're going to note as, as we're, we've said where we don't want to put our confidence is how can we know whether God is worthy of our confidence. And we're going to start by pointing out that God reveals himself 
to us through the primary vehicle of his written word. This is God telling us what he's like, what his character is, what he's about. This is God giving you and I the information that we need about his character that we could never figure out for ourselves. And I want us to think long and hard about this. This is a big, capital B, big deal is that we as humans will become very confident and very sure that we have a solid idea about who God is when we really have no idea about who God is. Instead of listening to God's word and letting uh, letting him tell us what he is like and who he is, we will tell God who we want him to be. And oddly enough, that when we try to tell God what we want him to be like, he's going to be just like us. Or, as one uh, saint so well pointed out, if you find that God constantly agrees with you, then you're probably making God in your own image and not listening to him about his self-revelation. So, we depend on God's word to reveal who God is. And today, what we're going to be doing is examining whether or not Our God is worthy of our confidence, whether or not we can be confident in God. We we just examined a a group of people and said, I'd be confident with that fellow if the issue was uh, fixing my car, and maybe that fellow if the issue was fixing my computer. I'd be confident with that fellow if I was in a medical emergency, and with that fellow if I was in a barroom brawl. Not that any of us would ever get into a barroom brawl. Nevertheless, we, we, we rate our confidence based on what we can discern about others. And so I know we're all supposed to ask, answer with the typical Sunday school church answer, of course we trust in God. That's why we're here. But I want to challenge all of us to move past the simple assertion, the willingness to assent and say, oh yes, I trust in God, and move beyond that to something greater, and that is actually trusting God, Right? It's easy enough to say it, and it's a good thing if you intellectually recognize I should be trusting God, but it is a different thing entirely when we actually abandon our worries, our cares, and our stresses of, our, of this life, when we finally step away from attempting to be justified by our own good works and trust in what he has done for us. It's a process. And so we're going to go through uh, these aspects, different aspects of God's character with the idea in mind, is God worthy of our confidence? And of course, I'm going to spoil the end for you. We're going to say yes at the end. (gasps) Shock, shock and horror. I can't believe it. I already spoiled the whole story. But what the goal of this is to remind us of the character of our God so that we can say with all certainty and all confidence, he is the one in whom I have put my trust. He is the one in whom I have put my future, in whose hands I've placed my future, and I don't repent of it one bit. And if this study, this time of study is successful, then you're going to spend all day tomorrow, no matter what happens, to some degree on cloud nine. Because you're not going to be able to forget how clearly God's word proclaims his character and his love for you and how much you are able to abandon your cares unto him or cast your cares unto him. So we start at a very good place to start, which is the beginning. 
We open by reading from Genesis 1. We're not going to read it over again because uh, most of you were probably listening. But if, you, if you've forgotten it already, um, seek medical attention and go ahead and move to Genesis 1. So uh, we note that the world that God created the world, ex nihilo, it means from nothing. God spoke and time, space, and matter came into existence. He didn't just create things. He created, and I want you to, we can't really come up with a, a reasonable understanding of this, but there was no time, no space, and no matter, and God spoke and things existed, and the space was there for them to exist. And time began as that space moved. God created those three things, right? And, and everything else therein. I want us to move to Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it's a rewarding one. In this passage, the, uh, the author Solomon is writing and he's personifying wisdom. Uh, you know, some have called her, I think Ben called her, in a Bible study some weeks ago, Lady Wisdom. And Lady Wisdom has built her house. And so there's this picture of wisdom being this beautiful, inviting hostess, calling to everybody, come in, be wise, be, uh, choose wisdom, choose godliness, choose a godly life. Don't choose the foolishness and the dead-end deceptions of the world, which is, uh, of course, the uh, next part. But we want to look at 22 through 31 because it, it has value. It says, the Lord possessed me. So the Lord here is Yahweh or Jehovah, God, possessed me, Lady Wisdom, at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled down, before the hills I was brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a deep circle on the face of the deep, when he, or drew a circle on his face of the deep, and when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters could not or would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now, what I want to draw our attention to about this picture is that here, personified as Lady Wisdom, she's saying that before God created anything, he created all the rules. Now, that's difficult for us to really think about, but we take, or we take it totally for granted. But God didn't just design all the things or all the space or all the time. He designed how atoms would attract and repel each other. He designed how gravity and magnetism and electricity would all work. We think that by discovering these things, we've invented them. But all we're doing is discovering the ingenious wisdom of God's perfectly designed and finely tuned created universe machine so god is the one what we want to draw from this who created everything and that includes the fact that god is the one who created the rules why we fall down instead of falling up 
was because at the end of the day, God willed it. Why, when you plant this seed, it brings forth an apple tree that brings forth apples and never brings forth pears or, you know, pickles? Although I would love to have a pickle tree. We've mentioned this. Pickles are delightful. And if there was a tree that would just grow fully fermented pickles, I would be a happy, happy farmer of pickles. And before you say it, no, I'm not going to grow cucumbers. It takes way too long to make them into pickles when the store does it for you. But anyway, God is the one who created those processes. God is the one who created that wisdom. In other words, the way everything works. The reason why I want to bring, the, bring this to our, the forefront of our mind is that it, if we're going to put our trust or ask, is God worthy of our confidence? We have to start with the fact, not only that he created everything, he created all the rules that govern everything. If we were to put it in terms of computer programming, which may or may not be a, a, a meaningful illustration for us at certain times, but if we were going to put it in the terms of computer programming, we're going to say that God didn't just design the program. He designed the programming language and the computer and everything to do with it, which means that if you have a question about what's going on in this world, God is without a doubt the final authority in every sense of the word in terms of how, he know, how much he knows and how much he is capable. Very well it was said by Henry Morris that anyone who understands and can believe Genesis 1-1 will have no trouble believing everything else in the Bible. If you can believe that God created, if you believe that God created everything, which is, by the way, the most reasonable assumption, then you will also have the ability to, or then you also be able to believe uh, that everything else is created and, and responds to his ultimate power and position. And the answer, of course, in this situation is yes. That God which created heaven and earth is worthy of our con uh, confidence. Compare that to the ridiculous gods and goddesses of the uh, pagan mythologies. They're always subject to time. They're always subject to change. They're always subject to some other force acting upon them. But God, who created all things, never is. Consider the forces in which we put uh, confidence. Things like money. Money has a certain amount of power and a certain amount of authority to get something done in this world for certain. But it comes to the end very quickly at time of great need. And yet God never comes to the end because he is ultimately the creator and the owner to which all things are responsible. So let's move on to another tra uh, trait of God. Here we have uh, Psalm 90 and verse 2. It says, let's, let's read this one together. Will you read it with me? It's, it's on the screen, hopefully big enough. Here we go. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Excellent. So here it is in Hebrew. That explains it all to you, right? <laughs> this everlasting, the only thing I want to bring about, and um, I don't, oh wait, I do, I can, I can do this. Um, the only thing I want to bring about from this, and of course Hebrew reads from right to left. Do you guys see the little dot? Yes. Yeah, you see the little dot. That's excellent. Um, as we move uh, from, from right to left here, vume, or ume, here is, this is the and or even, and may is from, okay? Olam ad olam, 
from uh, everlasting to, or from eternity to eternity is a better way to put, or is another way to put this rather. The idea of olam is the idea of something that does not start at the beginning and last forever. It's something that exists entirely outside of time. So from the everlasting before time was counted and existed and space happened to the everlasting after time cont- uh, stops to be stops being counted when it finally reaches its uh, horizon or event horizon at the at, at what we call the present. God is always who he is. He is always self-existent as God, as the mighty one. Before time starts, after time ends, God is himself. God is not limited by time. He is the powerful one. And so we ask, is such a one, is such a God who is not affected by time, in any way trustworthy and we'd say yes he's the most trustworthy right if i'm ever going to put my trust in another person i'm always if we like tempering that trust by the fact that they're limited in time and space they may not be there at the moment that i need them as much as their desire might be to always be there for you for me the very great tragedy of of especially of those we care about and love and long to protect is that at the moment of greatest need we might be elsewhere we might be in bed right but god existing outside of time in absolute eternity is the only person who is trustworthy in the fullest regard Putting your confidence, to say this another way, putting your confidence anywhere else beside the character of the God of the Bible is the utmost ridiculousness. And not putting confidence in him is also silly. Next, we look at a a couple other passages, Numbers 23, 19. Now, this is often called the doctrine of immutability. Um, And immutability means he doesn't change. These are two very... Uh, familiar passages these should be on your memory list if you're if you're memorizing bible verses i'd highly recommend these ones um, numbers twenty three nineteen says god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent or has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not make it good echoing this thought our brother in the Lord James says in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, this trait of God is easy to misunderstand because people will say, haven't there been times where God did change his mind? Right? God was going to bless and... and um, continue to bless Adam and Eve's mission, and then what happened? They sinned, and they didn't get that blessing. They got the curses, right? And so we say, see, God changed. Well, actually, God didn't. When we talk about the unchanging nature of God or the immutability of God, what we're talking about is the fact that he does not change in his character. He does not change in 
his character in who he is, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his, uh, in his power, and in his love. That never changes, that never alters. And we say, is that really noteworthy? Well, yes, it absolutely is. Because we're constantly changing in our character. Sometimes we're growing and becoming uh, more in character like God and growing positively in our character. Other times we see that there are slips in our character. There's cracks in our integrity. There's things that we fail and, and, and fail to uh, come forward on. And so our character is a constantly moving, changing, shifting sand. But God's character never changes. He is always 100% himself without any need for anyone else. And so when man changes, then God, because his character never changes, might change in how he's dealing with man, right? So God is, is blessing and blessing and blessing Israel, and then they they become faithless, they abandon him, and what happens? Well, he can no longer bless them because his character cannot bless that sinful behavior. So he begins to allow curses to fall on them so that they'll come back to him, that corrective discipline, right? Did God change? No, God's justice, love, mercy, grace were always there. It's just that because the people in the situation changed, so he was able to give them, uh, or he had to treat them differently, or they experienced a different outflow of his perfect and unchanging character. So this is the reality of God, and this is great news. Again, when you're trusting in someone, I'm sure we've all had that wonderful, actually horrifying and painful situation where you had a friend and you thought you could trust him, you knew you could trust him, you knew you could count on him, and at the last minute, they just changed. And you can never, you might never come to an understanding of how that happened. That the person you trusted that uh, let you down at the last minute because their character seemingly has changed. But the reality is because of the unchanging character of God or the immutability of God, it means you can take every word of this book to the bank every time. He's not evolving. He's not growing. He's not changing. He's not uh, at one day the party God and at next day the punishment God right? He's not one day happy with you and the next day filled with wrath just at random, like a, some sort of moody genie from an ancient you know, myth or mythology. He is always 100% true unto himself as he's revealed himself to us in his word. And that means that you can put absolute confidence in Christ and God. Next, we learn about holiness Psalm 99.5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Um, oh, here we go. This is Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with the two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There is no other uh, attribute of God that is repeated in this exact way in Scripture, that he is holy, holy, holy. And we very frequently falsely attribute holiness with righteousness 
And that's because, so we say if a person is holier than thou, we're probably also saying that they're self-righteous. Neither are uh, admirable quotes or admirable traits. But the idea is that holiness means being separate from the world, from everything. He is separated. He is holy unto himself. There is none like him. And he is in no way dependent upon this world. It's a very common trope in, an, in a, any kind of action or suspense movie to get all the way to the end and find out that the main character, your protagonist friend, had been bought off by the bad guy at some point, right? It's one of the great moments as the, as the hero kind of steps forward and then he finds out that, that, the, bad, or that the bad guy had somehow uh, convinced his buddy to betray him, Right? And then you get that moment where they exchange that glance and the, the person who's betraying the hero says, oh, but they had my family. They threatened to hurt my family. So I had to. And there's that kind of nod of understanding, right? Because they are not totally separate from the world. They're vulnerable to being attacked. Maybe you don't forgive him. Maybe you just ax him. Like, he should have been faithful. But regardless of how you deal with it, the point is, is that there is nothing, no force, no power on this earth that can exert control over God and force him to change his behaviors, his actions, or his character. There is nothing that can exert power over him because he is holy. He exists independently of his creation. And that means that you can trust him. In fact, that means that God is the only one who can show true love. You see, if I try to love you, if I'm hoping to love you or I, I do love you, whatever the case, it's always going to have an end, right? You're going to be able to abuse me to the point that I can no longer stand it because, again, I'm, I'm uh, finite and weak and limited, you're going to finally come to the end of my patience or I'm going to fail to love you, right? Because again, I've, I'm, I'm finite in this world. Or if you like, um, I will finally come to the end of my life and just die and be unable to love you anymore on this earth, right? The fact that I am limited and the fact that I am still hoping for demanding things from you as well in a human relationship means that I can never truly love you the way that God can love you. You see, when God says he loves you, it's not because of anything that you have to offer him. It's based upon him and his character, and you're just the object of that as we see and he can do that because he is holy because he is set apart because he is separated from his creation next we see that he's all-knowing and he's ever present for the present we go to this for psalm 139 we won't read it all although it is a wonderful psalm and worthy also of your bible memory list or your attention Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before your hand, uh, lay, or, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
For where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. What does this tell us? God is everywhere present and God is all knowing, not just from the uh, farthest reaches to the darkest cave on this planet, but into the darkest part of your own soul. And before you say something, God already knows the word that is going to come on your tongue. That's remarkable. Because that means that when God presented to you the offer, offer of salvation by faith through grace in his son, Jesus Christ, he already knew about how you would fail him tomorrow. And he offered it knowing that as well. He knew everything that is, everything that will be, everything that may be. How do we know that? Jesus said uh, at one point, you know, if, if the things that it, miracles had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sack, sackcloth and ashes. What does that show? It shows that God, uh, Jesus Christ, that God himself doesn't just know what does happen or what will happen. He knows what would have happened if something else happened. That is exhaustive, complete knowledge. God's knowledge is not uh, limited by the limitations of human perception. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but a lot of us get this kind of very primitive idea of God, right, from cartoons or whatever, that he's sitting on a throne on a cloud and he's looking down. So if you're in a building, he can't see you, and then he's waiting for you to come out again. And you're like, oh, there he is. Maybe he doesn't. We hope. But the reality is, is that God does not perceive this world through an eye. God Almighty knows where every atom, where every electron, where every cell, he knows what everything is from every perspective. He's never got the wrong view on things. The darkness presents no way of interfering with his lack of knowledge of states of affairs as they actually are. So in other words, while we can know some things and we can see a very, very, very small percentage of the things that happen in this world, that is hardly a just picture of what it means that our God is all-knowing. And so the question is, can you trust, can you have confidence in a God who truly knows every detail, every factor of every situation in your entire life? I find it easier to trust him knowing that even while from my perspective things seem to be spinning hopelessly out of control, that everything is right in hand for he who knows all things. Coming towards uh, the end of our study, I think we have just two left. Uh, God is light. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Sin, rather. You see, God is the author of light, and it is not a coincidence that the creation of light was part of the very beginning of God's creative act. You see, God's light reveals, right? We can't see things unless there's light. If you're ever in a true situation of, of pitch blackness, it's amazing how your eyes, right, plates tricks on you because they're just scraping at anything to see. And if you've been in darkness long enough, even the slightest flare of light, even the slightest spark of light, your eye immediately gravitates for it towards it because light is the way in which or the, the vehicle through which we see all other things. In light, we can see things as they truly and really are. God is light in the sense that he and he alone is an, it has the authoritative view of reality. The only sensible understanding any person can have is based on God's revelation of what is true and what is false. In Jesus Christ, we find that we have the spiritual light. He, that's where God sheds the light. In his word, he sheds his spiritual light on situations and circumstances. And anybody trying to make sense of this world apart from God's word is stumbling around in the dark. Maybe being lucky enough to bash their shin on the coffee table of the spiritual world before they trip and break their spiritual neck. So does this knowledge that God himself is light contribute to our confidence in him? I certainly hope so. Our final trait we'll look at may in some way be uh, the most important. John, uh, 1 John 4, 8 through 9 says, he who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God wants you to know that he's holy. God wants you to know that he's righteous. God knows, wants you to know that he's perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-ever-present. And God wants you to know that he is love. Hear me now. God doesn't have love. God doesn't have a warm feeling or regard towards a certain person. He is, as radiates forth from the glory of his being, love characterizes every ray of who he is. God is love, and that love is perfectly fulfilled within the Trinity. God the Father loves God the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit loves God the Son and loves God the Father. God the Son loves God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Everyone loving everyone. God is perfectly contained in his triune goodness, and he needed nothing out of creation. Again, back to that reality that he can create you as an object of his love, needing nothing from you. And that is the only real love this world can ever know. And the only way that we can hope to give that love is by understanding that it comes from God and from God alone and finding our fullness and our fullness and our confidence in him. Romans 5, 8 drives this home. We really end this study uh, at that last verse. But on the off chance that this is the only Bible study you'll ever hear online or whatnot, we can't stop there. We have to note 
that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies unto him, while we were yet rebels to his goodness and his cause, Jesus Christ died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. That God, who alone, as we've seen, is worthy of your confidence and trust, that God alone who can enable you to live a life of confidence and hope and peace said, I love you so much that I'm going to prove it to you by putting my son up on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins, a willing, a volunteer to pay the price so that you might be forgiven and brought to me. Why? Because I am love and I love you. So, in closing our study on confidence done correctly, and hopefully balancing out last week's study of confidence done incorrectly, or confidence gone wrong, God is the only reasonable object for our confidence. Are you committed to that fact? Hopefully last week, you saw that all of our other objects fall woefully short. You put confidence in your intelligence. You will come to the end of your intelligence eventually. You put confidence in your strength. You will surely come to the end of your strength. You put confidence in your wealth. You will surely come to the end of your wealth in short order. If you put confidence in a world government or in another, you will surely find yourself ultimately let down and betrayed by those others or that government or that group. If you put your confidence anywhere besides the Lord God, you are only a boat awaiting shipwreck on the stony shores of this reality. However, if you put your confidence in God, you'll find that you can move through this life, not without trouble, not without trial. Quite to the contrary, you will have troubles, you will have trials in this life, but you will be able to move through them if you're finding your confidence and trust in the God revealed in the Bible that we uh, talked about today. So the question that we have to ask as you go about your week this week or in the next few days why are you trying so hard to find confidence anywhere else? As we go through our day, we try to find confidence and say, oh, well, that'll never happen. Oh, the worst will never come. I won't get sick. I feel fine. I won't get hurt. I won't get, I won't, it won't, it'll be fine. It'll be best. We are constantly scraping to find confidence or a sense of value or a sense of self-worth in our, in, in our own world and in our own control, and it will never be there. You know that your confidence belongs in Christ and in Christ alone. Might we learn to put it there in him every, evermore as we go through our days and, and particularly the weeks of this study. Let's close our study with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for this time, for the wonderful gift of your word, for your love, for your character. Lord, you are the only one worthy of our trust. And while this world 
seeks to make us vulnerable, frightened, hurt, and scared. Those who run to you as their strong tower remain secure. You are a shield. You are a buckler. You, O Lord, are our defense and our ever-present help in time of trouble. You, O Lord, are our hope and our confidence forever will be in you. Please, O Lord, let us come evermore to a greater and greater understanding of that truth. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.